constantly move forward. There's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. And good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and BigBeacon.org is an independent nonprofit organized in 2012 to help transform higher education, particularly engineering and professional education. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can tweet about the show, ask questions, or make comments about the the show at um, hashtag Big Beacon. And a special shout out to Salma Bernie, who's uh, live tweeting the show today, and to uh, uh, Coach uh, uh, Bev Jones, who helped us uh, uh, get our our guest and today we're um, really pleased to be joined by uh, Carol O'Donnell. Welcome to the the show, Carol. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. It's great to have you on, and and uh, we'll explore your some of your uh, your work there at the Smithsonian Institute. But Carol, you're a geoscientist, you uh, science educator, edu- at various times educational policy analyst and researcher physics faculty member, and now the director of the Smithsonian Science Education Center. But um, who or what were some of the early influences that put you on your current path? You know, it's interesting because when you list those things, they seem almost disparate, but, you know, they certainly aren't. Um, You know, the path's been an interesting one. I mean, from the very beginning, I was always somebody who was very engaged in the world around me, whether it was, you know, kind of experimenting with things out in my backyard or whether it was actually inventing things in my own home, uh, you know, keeping my own little engineering notebook. I was always, I think, somebody who was kind of interested in the world around me as well as the problems that existed, identifying those problems, trying to solve them. And, you know, for a long time, I think when I was young, my parents thought I was going to become an engineer. But then, you know, really realized that teaching was actually absolutely my passion. So um, applied to college in order to go, go to a school that had a great teaching college, and that was the University of Pittsburgh. And I think from the very beginning was, was influenced by several people. I mean, first and foremost, um, when I was young, I, I read a lot about Hypatia of Alexandria. I mean, she was somebody who was who I was really interested in. And I think I was fascinated by the fact that she was, you know, many, many years ago, not only a mathematician, an astronomer, an inventor, philosopher, but most importantly, she's really a, a very well-respected teacher at a time when women weren't engaged in mm. science and she was found by men in her field and and wasn't afraid to pursue um, her interests. Well, her life didn't end well because of that, but um, I think that she was an early, early influencer. And in my own personal life, probably some of the people that were the greatest influencers were my high school, um, uh, high school teacher that I had who in, really got me hooked on doing science and learning science. Then I would probably say in college, one of my methods teachers, who was the first one to really introduce me to the idea that teaching science by doing science was the best method for 
many of our young students. Mm. And then when I started at the Smithsonian, one of my biggest mentors was probably um, Dr. Doug Glapp, who was the fr- founder of the center I now direct. Nice. And, and actually, so it's interesting. You mentioned a high school teacher. Um, um, I was just thinking about uh, my high school physics teacher, as you were taught. Ross Graham um, was a big influence on, in, um, and, and it went beyond, uh, you know, sometimes these people influence us uh, content-wise, but also uh, character-wise. Uh, there was something about Ross that um, was really attractive, and, and um, I wouldn't say I was sort of headed, I sort of came by engineering naturally, but he was, uh, but the chemistry and physics and, and uh, personal guidance was important to me. That's right. That's right. And that's what a good mentor does. And that's why mentors play such an important role. I mean, it's it's funny because I'm actually in Aspen, Colorado right now, not in my office in D.C. Yeah. And the reason I'm here is because we're engaged in a new program called Atlas, Always Thinking Like a Scientist, where we're it's completely based on mentorship. So scientists mentor high school students. High school students then serve as the teachers, if you will, in the after-school program, the after-school program called Atlas. And they then become the mentors of middle school students. And the entire program is based on the importance of mentorship. And, and certainly, I think you, you, you nailed it. I mean, these mentors in our life, I cannot say enough about them. Not only is it important for kids to be exposed to people who look like them, who help them to see themselves in those future roles, but also, as you said, not only teach them the practice of the field, but also those lifelong lessons. So I think we all could probably talk on and on about people who've been great mentors in their life. Well, and maybe, maybe that'll pop up again. And, and, and you hinted at it before. Um, on this show, we're particularly interested in what uh, Mark Somerville and I labeled unleashing experiences uh, in the book, a whole new engineer. And, and, and um, by those um, we, we talk about, the trust of this mentor or guide, or sometimes our own, trusting ourselves, uh, leads to us leads us to have the courage to take initiative and do something that we might not have done, which leads to authentic learning. So, my question is, who or who or what in in your life has given you courage to go your own way when you might not you might not have done so? You know, so I'll start with the who, but then I'll shift to the what. I mean, I think. Sure. In terms of who, you know, I'll go back to the founding director of this center, Doug Lapp. You know, I mean, I was very young when I started at the center. I was 30, had just finished, you know, 31, just had finished a decade of teaching. And, you know, was was young both in age, but also in my experiences in the world. And, you know, here was somebody who saw something in me that I never really saw in myself. So I was at the center, started in 1991 as a curriculum developer. But he would, you know, bring me into meetings with some of the most high-level officials, you know, whether they were from other countries visiting to learn more about inquiry-based science education in the U.S. or or whether it was just making decisions. And I think what I didn't realize then was that he saw something in me professionally that I didn't see. And, of course, today I now hold his same position you know, what, 25 years later. Anyway, I would never would have imagined that. But I think he saw that. So it's, it's having somebody in you, somebody in that, is, that you work with either or is in your personal life who, as you kind of said, 
unleashes an experience for you, recognizes that by providing certain experiences, that's the the gateway into the next step. Um, In terms of, you know, what's given me courage, I probably would say that working in a place where the strong belief that education is incredibly powerful and has the ability to unleash Mm. experiences in your own life. And those educational experiences don't have to be in formal classrooms. I mean, we, at our center, we work predominantly in formal education, whether it's in-school learning or, or learning directly after school. But we also, of course, being at the Smithsonian, believe in the power of learning in all settings. And, you know, the Smithsonian believes deeply in lifelong learning and that it, that lifelong learning should also be experiential. So I do think that, you know, we, we often talk about these gateway experiences, that t- there are times when students might walk into the museum or engage in our classrooms, and we provide experiences for them that oftentimes they will talk about for years. Yeah. And they may never have had that opportunity if they hadn't visited that museum or hadn't spoken with that scientist or hadn't engaged in that activity in a classroom. Yeah. And so we really do believe in making sure that all kids have the opportunity to engage in these what we call gateway experiences and what are very similar to your um, interest in unleashing experiences. We had um, uh, last month we had uh, Dan Heath on the program uh, uh, New York Times bestselling author and his latest uh, book with his uh, brother uh, Chip Heath is uh, The Power of Moments and we talked about uh, what what constitutes a a moment that um, that creates a shift or creates different possibilities in your life and so what are some of the um, common common places and they, and of course they go beyond you know sometimes these moments go beyond uh, unleashing unleashing is a particular kind of moment but um started to think I, i've been a collector of moments in my own life and the the lives of my um my wife and my 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 kids but uh, i've been thinking more about moment and moment design and it seems to me that that um uh, that your work leads in that direction. So, so now for a couple of years, uh, two and a half years, you've been the director of the Smithsonian Science Education Center, um, and you told us a little bit of how you uh, ended up. Uh, uh, that sounds like an awesomely cool job. So, but uh, tell our audience a little bit more about the uh, Science Education Center, and uh, you were doing other things. What prompted you to take this particular job? Yeah. So. Um you know, my, as I mentioned earlier, my career started off yeah. as a, an educator. I wasn't a science teacher in the beginning. I was just a teacher, not just, but I was a teacher, an elementary teacher. Mm-hmm. And I became a science teacher by default because my colleagues, uh, and this is sad to say, but, you know, science is, when you're an elementary teacher, you may not necessarily have a science background. And so science is one of these subjects, unfortunately, that it's often... Um, not the favorite subject for elementary teachers to teach. And, you know, I was an elementary teacher, and um, but I had a lot of colleagues who thought, well, Carol, geez, if you love science that much, why don't, why don't you teach science? And we'll take social studies and language arts. And, and so we agreed to do that. We kind of departmentalized. And this was in the early 80s when this was not very common. Yep. And, and so it was that kind of love of engaging students in scientific learning that I fell in love with. Well, you know, after teaching for a decade, I started my family and, um, you know, realized that I wanted to be at home with them. 
but I couldn't afford not to because my, my husband was also a teacher. He was a special education teacher for 30 years. And so I applied for this job that was in the newspaper. It was a curriculum developer job at the Smithsonian. I thought, well, that's something I could do at home. You know, I can write at home. And I got the job. And for 11 years, I worked at home full-time mm-hmm. as a curriculum developer. Um, did, did a lot of travel, but, you know, ended up developing these curriculum modules for the Smithsonian and just absolutely fell in love with the Smithsonian. It is a beautiful place to be in terms of its its setting, the architecture, sitting on the mall between the Capitol and the monument, the large grassy knoll called the, the Washington National um, Mall, we call it, yes. the mall, um, yes. and just absolutely loved going to work every day. Loved the work that I did, um, loved the, how productive we were in terms of the materials that we produced for teachers, and felt like all of a sudden I was no longer a teacher of 32 kids, but I was a teacher of thousands of kids. Mm. And so the Smithsonian, you know, it's a very complicated place. It's got 19 museums, all most of them along the National Mall, um, Cooper Hewitt in New York City, nine, nine research centers, which are scattered throughout the, the country and in Panama, and five education centers, and I direct one of those education centers. Oh, and of course, the zoo. <laughs> and we can't forget that, um, where, where our beloved panda is. But I think what, you know, what prompted me to take my job early on at the Smithsonian was the fact that I got to teach so many kids through the curriculum modules we, we were developing. Mm-hmm. Now, I ended up leaving the Smithsonian after 11 years because I was given the opportunity to get my doctorate at George Washington University to study whether or not this kind of teaching, this inquiry-based science teaching, actually made a difference. And so I moved over to George Washington University for about five years uh, while I got my doctorate and then was um, learned a ton there. And I hope to talk a little bit later about that, about higher education and the role that I, I mm. now play in higher ed. Yeah. But, you know, I had a chance then to go on to work at the U.S. Department of Education for a decade where I, you know, really worked deeply in research for five years, a research analyst, and then five years as a policy analyst. And then I got a call from the Smithsonian asking if I would come back or at least consider applying for this director's position. And it was absolutely like a dream come true. I cannot even, I pinch myself, can't believe <laughs> to this day that I had the chance to come back to my most beloved position and place of work. So I think what prompted me to take the job is that I knew that not only would I be engaging kids in this kind of learning in a classroom, but in classrooms throughout the globe. Yeah, so you've been doing this uh, going back uh, early in your career and now later in your career, so you've, and you've, and interesting things in between. Um, What have you, uh, and, um, and, and certainly you'll tell us more about uh, about your work at the Smithsonian, but I'm just curious, sort of, if you stand back from all that time in, in doing inquiry-based education, what, if, what are some of the big takeaways in your learning over all that time? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost is that science and science education and learning in this way does not have borders. So, you know, the, the mission of the Smithsonian Science Education Center is to transform the teaching and learning of K-12 science across the globe. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I realized, and I didn't when I first came to the Smithsonian, was that everyone, no matter where you live, um, no matter which country you're, you're from, 
uh, no matter how great your resources or limited they are, that we all recognize now that this kind of learning, engaging students in what one first understanding who they are as an individual within their society, um, what their ideas are about the world around them, how they engage with their community in order to better understand their community stance on a particular scientific issue, uh, it, that it doesn't matter where um, students are in the world, in the United States, throughout the globe, that this kind of learning actually does make a difference. And so I think, for me, that's one of the biggest, biggest takeaways. You know, our, the Smithsonian, as a, as a massive institution, has as its overall mission to increase and diffuse knowledge. And when you think about it, what does increase mean? It means produce new knowledge. You know, so we've got thousands of scientists. Nobody realizes that. We th- most people think we're just, just a museum, and that's not the case. You know, we have thousands of scientists and researchers who, and artists and historians and cultural experts who are actually increasing our understanding of the world. And then diffusing it, you know, getting it out to people. And what does that mean? Educating them. So the Smithsonian is, is a perfect place for a, a global backdrop, if you will, of, of the importance of learning. Nice. And I think that's probably what I've, what I've come away with. Yeah. We need to take a little bit of a break, but after the break, I'd um, like to um, chat with you a little bit about your uh, recent uh, TED Talk about the um, power of physical stuff in, the, in our digital world, if we, if we can. Excellent. This is uh, Big Beacon Radio uh, with our special uh, guest, uh, Carol Donnell, from the uh, Smithsonian Science Education Center. Stay with us, and we're going we're gonna to talk about our uh, TED Talk in the next segment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. 
And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. The second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership facilitation to help transform yourself or your educational organization or institution. And uh, uh, stay posted for our upcoming online class called Mastering Change. Uh, you can find out more at deg at threejoy.com. And before the break, we were talking with our, our guest, Carol Donnell, from the um, Smithsonian Science Education Center. And, and, and Carol, uh, I was... Uh, in preparing for the show, I was watching your TED Talk, I think it was earlier this year, maybe April, and, and uh, TEDx uh, at Foggy, Bo- uh, Foggy, Foggy Bottom, and um, it was called The Power of Physical Stuff in Our Digital World. Um, I, I really enjoyed the talk. What inspired you to give a talk on, on that topic? Well, I was invited to give the talk by the organizers, and their theme was called Metamorphosis. Now, what I didn't realize about these TED Talks is that they're given in these venues as a conference, and there are a series of maybe, there were about 10 of us who gave talks that day, and people come from across the region to listen to the talks, and their theme that they had selected was metamorphosis, and so they contacted me because I was a prof- on the adjunct faculty of the physics department at George Washington University in Foggy Bottom. George Washington University is located in the Foggy Bottom region of D.C., and they had heard about my teaching methods at the university and asked me if I'd be willing to talk about how science education has changed over the years. So that's how um, I was invited. And then, you know, when they asked me that question, I thought, well, I think what I'd really like to focus on is not only how science education has changed over the years, but the what we're facing right now in terms of this incredible shift towards digital learning and what that means for somebody like me who really believes in hands-on, inquiry-centered kind of face-to-face learning and how those two worlds can come together. And that was my inspiration. Yeah, nice. And and uh, the talk had a number of points. Uh, one of them was personal. I think you told a story in the uh, TED Talk that about how uh, part of your inspiration to be a science was itself tactile. Uh, what was is my memory uh, serving me? Yeah, what was that? yeah. So yeah. you know, it's it's interesting because they have these uh, kind of standard ways these TED talks are given, and they even have someone's even given a TED talk on how TED talks are given. It was actually very funny, um, but. You know, one of the things they asked is that whether or not I would start with an anecdote about something personal um, years ago that might have inspired me to become um, not only interested in science education, but, um, you know, working on a, on a global scale in science education. And so I told them about a very, very true story. This was absolutely, you talk about one of these things, these, un, you know, unleashing an experience in an individual yep. or, or creating a gateway moment, a gateway experience for you. And for me... My gateway experience was most definitely, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. I grew up in inner city Pittsburgh um, in a fairly poor region of the city. And, you know, we were from a family that didn't do a lot of travel. We didn't go places or go on vacation, those kinds of things. And so, you know, my backyard really became my my laboratory. And, you know, one day uh, I was in science class and we were, I think I was in eighth grade at the time. And our teacher told us that, um, you know, and this was in our textbook, that if you cut a planarian flatworm in half, that it would regenerate. Now, I guarantee you, if I had just read that in the book or heard the teacher tell me that, I would not be telling you this story today. I probably would not be remembering much about planarian flatworms. 
But what happened, and the reason why I believe I still remember it today, is because that afternoon I got home, thought, I've got to figure this out for myself. Is this true? And I went into my backyard and, you know, looked for a planarian flatworm. And, and I found one under a rock, wet rock, because we had a stream that kind of cut through our backyard. I lifted up that wet rock, um, we literally cut the planarian flatworm in half and put him into this kind of makeshift Petri dish. And two weeks later, I now had two flatworms. And I, will, I still to this day cannot believe that actually happened. So I think for me, <laughs> you know, that was really what, from that moment on, that's what inspired me to actually believe that this kind of learning about the world around you was the, what I wanted to engage not only myself, but also others in. And, you know, really prompted me to become a science teacher. Yeah, and so, and, and um, in, in talking about your inspiration for the talk, you talked talked about the interface between sort of tactile and hands-on learning like that and, and say, uh, uh, digital learning. What's the, um, what's the conflict or what's the, um, what, what's your concern or, or, or what should we be talking about? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I most definitely try to make it clear in the talk that it is not about just engaging in physical learning, hands-on learning, that it is a combination of both physical learning and engaging in digital learning that, in, a, in other words, creating a truly multimodal learning experience, but to be very careful about when you introduce one or the other. And so, you know, there's been a lot of really good research that's been done about science learning in grades kindergarten through 12th grade that have compared and studied when it is best for students to engage in hands-on physical learning and when it's actually good for them to engage in digital learning. And I think one of the clear takeaways is, is one, that it has to be multimodal, that it's not about one over the other. Um, so I'm a bit fearful that today there's been some shift to students spending a lot more time engaged in digital learning at the expense of also engaging in physical hands-on learning. And so I think that some of the research that's been done, one by a, a, what I, a person who I respect immensely and got to, to meet and do some work with during five of my years at the U.S. Department of Education where I oversaw the Cognition and Student Learning Program, uh, a, a researcher by the name of Sian Bylock who's at the University of Chicago did a study on this very question. And one of the things that she found was that it's really important for us to understand, first of all, that the order in which you engage students, if you have a multimodal environment where you're doing both physical and digital, great. But you've got to also now figure out, well, what do you do first? Do you do physical first? Do you do digital first? Do you do only digital? And what she and many other researchers say is that it depends on the topic, so it depends on the domain or the discipline, Physical science, as, it, as its name says, is often a very good um, example of when you should engage students in physical learning. Um, in addition, it also depends on what the students currently know about the topic. So when you're dealing with students who are novices or who have currently have misconceptions about an idea, that you're actually much better off engaging them first in the hands-on physical tactile experiences and then introducing and expanding their ideas by introducing them to the idea through some digital means. 
So let's just take one example. So if I wanted to introduce to students why it is that tornadoes form, and this is a fairly new idea to them, and it's in the physical science or science domain, I might first actually give them convection tubes where they create a very warm um, air mass, if you will, and a a cooler air mass. And then put the two together, and now all of a sudden they see incredibly turbulent air. They physically can see the air moving. It's swirling. And so now they've had this physical experience where they've created two different air masses, two different temperatures, two different densities, put them together, and now you've got this very turbulent air. And now they apply it to a digital simulation. We've developed one called um, Disaster Detector, where now they learn about tornadoes and how they form and understand them more globally or across the the nation where they're most likely to form. So I think that's a good example of introducing students um, and engaging them in a multimodal experience, but knowing when to engage them physically and when to engage them digitally. So I I was struck by your, um, you know, so the polarity here, to use uh, Barry Johnson's term, uh, we've got these opposites that kind of need each other is the way Barry uses that term. We and but sometimes when we when we're doing the new th- the new kid on the block, we view it as a solution, and we we sort we tend to I think your point is we tend to overemphasize it, and we we don't think as carefully about the mixing. And it seems to me that you know that that this resonates also with a point that you were making about the development of science teaching. So there's sort of also science teaching had this very strong theoretical. A lot of words, maybe some mathematics, but it was all very abstract. And then the polarity then was with theory and hands-on. And so now we're talking about having um, maybe a triple here. We've got sort of digital simulation and computers to help us see things that are hard to see. And, and we've got hands-on where we can experience things. And, then, and we also have theoretical understanding and how to kind of use those things in concert is what it seems to me you're talking about. Comment. That's right. And so it's the combination of the three. And we, you know, I mean, I've been engaged in science education for 34 years now. Our center is 32 years old. And this is not a coincidence. You know, we, you know, back in 1985, I think we realized as a nation that in order to be globally competitive, we had to have a more scientifically literate citizenry. And as you noted, we realized it's also not just about teaching kids science, that there are other domains, math, engineering, technology. And that's why you hear so much about STEM. And then, of course, the importance, and the Smithsonian believes deeply in this, the importance of also integrating art and the humanities into that work. You know, that years ago, um, our domains were very siloed. And today, we see them as much more integrated. And so not only are the topics, the domains being integrated into STEM or STEAM, as many people call it when they include the arts, but it's also being integrated in, in terms of our approach. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in the TED Talk is this, because the theme of the TED Talk was metamorphosis, the question yeah. was, well, how has science education changed? And, you know, back in the 1985, in 1985 in the 1980s, when our center first started, it's because most of science education and education in general was very textbook-driven. And so the mode of learning was that the teacher stood at the front of the room, had all of the knowledge, and imposed that knowledge on students. And our job was, as a sponge, is to absorb it all and understand it. And, 
you know, as the 1980s progressed and, you know, people started to recognize the importance of hands-on learning, you know, Vygotsky talked about like sociocultural learning, engaging students with objects and with each other. Then we started to delve more into, okay, so it's not just about learning science by listening to somebody tell us about it or reading about it, but we can also engage people in cooperative learning, get them into groups, put objects in the middle, engage them in terms of their perceptions of those objects. But even that, I mean, that was great, a great shift. But even then, it wasn't good enough really to just learn about the object and to understand the object's characteristics. You know, there was something missing and that what something was missing was that the object was kind of out of its context, of its environment. And so today, science learning is much more about putting those objects into the context of their environment so that we understand phenomena and are able to apply our understanding of phenomenon-based learning to real world. And so now we, we bring students to places that are too far away, too small, um, too large for them to actually experience firsthand in the classroom. And that's why digital learning has become such an important part of this integration with physical learning. Because now we're really trying to get kids to understand not just those physical objects, but how those objects tell the story of some phenomena that they'll actually witness in their own, their own life. Yeah, it's interesting. You, as I was listening to you talk, and you you sneaked in another polarity uh, about sort of individualistic. So you know the the learning of the seventh, the Cold War and the eighties through the eighties was strictly individualistic, and to do otherwise is to cheat. But uh, the the a sense of community and and collaboration, and there's a social the social component to learning that was kind of not part of the conversation back then. Um, uh, to what extent do you find that important as well these days? Yeah, no, no. I think your your point is excellent. I mean, you think about it. How many papers, scientific papers, do you pick up where it's authored just by one person? It's pretty rare. Yeah. Um, you know, most scientific papers are, and scientific discoveries are with dozens of people. I mean, I, I don't even know. It was I think it was hundreds of people who were actually authors on the paper that came out of this discovery of gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason NASA's number the, one of the number one places in the country, federal agencies to work at is because they are completely engaged in collaborative learning. And that's the same kind of learning we try to create in our classrooms um, and also on site at the Smithsonian. I mean, we have a, a place called Curious at the Natural History Museum where we really try to bring kids together into one space where they interact with scientists and with each other around our collections. And, you know, we believe deeply in this kind of social aspect of learning, collaborative learning. In addition, I think another important point is that it's actually not just about scientific learning anymore. It's also about socio-scientific aspects of learning. So you take some of these really complex ideas that we try to help kids engage in, um, you know, whether it's the challenge around mosquito-borne diseases and Zika, for example, or whether it's climate change. You know, these are really complex issues. They're not simple problems. They're not even com- uh, complicated problems. They're actually complex problems. Yeah. And so they have multiple causes and therefore multiple solutions. But the solutions are not just scientific. They are 
socio-scientific. So we really try to make sure that kids are not only engaging with each other and trying to solve these scientific problems and understand them, but they're also seeing them from multiple perspectives, whether it's a social perspective, an economic one, um, a political you know, perspective, or even an environmental one. So we really believe that students need to think much more broadly about science. And, and that, I think, is where education is heading in general. I guess, you know, so one of the things that's always puzzled me as an engineer that is that, you know, how how things got this screwed up in the first place. And it, this goes with engineering education as well, because if you think about, you know, if you think about technology and, and understanding of things scientific, there's no chicken or egg problem. People were using stone axes two and a half million years ago before they could even speak. So there was no, there, so there, and so everything then since then, um, the complexity of language and the complexity of all of our, all the technological artifacts that make science and mathematics possible are, are, are actually fairly recent occurrences. And yet, for some reason, we study and kind of put on a pedestal this very uh, late um, understanding in ways that are sort of uh, motivationally in um, out of whack. I mean, so it, people people dig technology; they use technology, but actually, the understanding of technology is 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 very low. And yet, technology um, is something that we all touch, and 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 so it, it's always puzzled me why we how we got messed up in the first place. What um, from your from your point of view, what uh, why are we? It, it, it seems almost obvious when I say it the way I said it that historically, these these the technology came first, and yet we seem we seem determined to kind of uh, foist the most difficult and most recent con- concepts on people before we kind of get them to understand the basics that are part of their lives. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know sometimes what happens, at least in education is that whatever is the new shiny thing is what we want to engage our students with. And that's not a problem except for the fact that when you're thinking about who that learner is, what they already understand about the problem, and whether or not that's the right mode of teaching or learning for them, uh, you know, I think that's, that's where we get into this problem, where we get into trouble in terms of educators, is that we really do have to recognize that you know, it is not about what that new shiny bright thing is um, in, you know, in, in terms of, for example, digital learning is a, a good example or technology, using technology. Yeah. But it's what's the right mode for teaching students and, um, yeah. and how can we best use those tools? And that's what technology is from a pencil or pen to a computer. You know, how do we use those tools in the right way to make certain that students understand the idea, especially, you know, our expertise is with kids who are as young as pre-kindergarten. And we are always thinking about what does that young student already know? Um, Where is their current state of understanding about the problem or the scientific idea? And what's the best method to use to help them start in a place where they current, they have a chance to understand the issue from their perspective, um, to, to challenge their own misconceptions, if you will, although there are many terms 
other than misconception, but to challenge their own current conceptions about an idea, and then to be able to build on those ideas over time. And so I think it's, you know, one of the reasons our center spends a lot of our time curating experiences for educators and students is because it's not easy. We draw heavily from the cognitive literature about, you know, what works in terms of teaching practices and when can you introduce certain, um, you know, aspects of collaborative learning, et cetera. When does collaborative learning work? When does it not work? And then we test it with classrooms all over the globe to make sure that our approaches of curating those experiences for teachers and students actually has an impact. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's really about not just going after what the best and shiniest new object is in education, but also making sure that you're using that tool appropriately. Great. Let's, uh, we need to take a break and, and, um, actually earlier in the segment, you talked about sort of the era of textbooks and unfortunately in some of our higher education, uh, uh, these days, that era is still with us, and I want to talk a little bit about the interface between uh, K-12 and and uh, quality STEM education and learning and higher education in our next segment. Great. Excellent. So this is our this is Big Beacon Radio, radio with our special guest uh, Carol Donnell, and and the next segment we're going to move from K-12 to to uh, higher ed. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-472. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're we're back with Carol O'Donnell from the Smithsonian Science Education Center. And Carol, we we've been talking largely about not only but largely about K, reaching K twelve students. And I, I think arguably we are doing better at um, 
than we did back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, getting young people excited. But I, I know that as uh, in my work with Big Beacon and in Three Joy, I talk I'll talk to high school teachers who say we you know we that they get they they get these kids all psyched and primed and pumped and ready to go off and be uh, scientists or engineers and they hit they hit the university and uh and uh we college professors and universities do a pretty good job of kind of hitting them back with the old stuff and and uh disengaging them from from science comment you know, it's uh, it's interesting because when I was at um, George Washington University working as a research scientist on this five-year study about K through 12 science education yep. changing to be much more inquiry-centered, I had an opportunity to engage with the physics department because we needed technical advisors, if you will, who had science backgrounds. And it was in my discussions with the physics department and the chair at the time, Cornelius Benhold, who sadly has passed away. He um, was really very interested in what we were doing in K-12, through and he said, you know, Carol, I wonder, I mean, could you help us? Because this was in 2005. He's like, we, you know, we're in a really difficult place. We have our traditional uh, lecture hall, 125 students in Corcoran Hall at George Washington University, and then our students go off to labs, you know, very traditional labs where they're kind of told what to do. This was back in 2005. Yep. And they, the students don't see a connection. They don't see a connection between what they do in the lab and what actually happens in the lecture. Yep. And they complain dreadfully about the lectures not being exciting or interesting and that they can't engage in the topic. What can we do to change this? And so he challenged me to think about whether or not it was possible to bring some of these methods to the college level. And so I told him about our work. Um, I was working under Dr. Sharon Lynch, who was the principal investigator at the time of this George Washington University study for grades K through 12. And I told him about it. It was called Scale Up. And I, I mentioned to him that there was a program that he had actually heard about, which was at in North Carolina State University, where Bob Beekner was testing, changing, and reforming um, undergraduate teaching, these large-scale classes with 125 students or more, so that it was much more interactive and in how you would do that. So Bob Beekner came up to George Washington University, taught uh, Cornelius Benhold, the chair of the physics department, these methods, and together we decided we were going to try to create our first hands-on, inquiry-centered, multimodal, high-tech and digital, digital and physical, classroom at George Washington University. So um, they gave me the astronomy class, undergraduate introductory astronomy, and asked me to basically reform it so that it was more hands-on. And so that's what I did. And I taught the first um, reform-based class in 2008 after three years of working with them, uh, where we tore down the walls of the classroom at the university, um, brought in these large round tables uh, that were students would sit in teams of nine and work in groups of three yep. in which they were constantly collaborating with each other, constantly physically engaging with things. And the room was very high tech so that we could also integrate technology and physical learning together. And we've been doing that now ever since. Now every single class except for I think one or two at the university is taught in this 
integrative method where lecture and lab come together into one classroom. It's for credit. Students don't have lab as separate. It's totally integrated. And I would probably say that the most a professor hopefully talks at a time is maybe about 10 minutes before the students then engage in a problem together. And it's been wonderful. Now the university has built a brand new science hall and all of the classrooms are designed in the same way. So I do think that higher education has come a long way and it's kind of recognition that students know that working collaboratively, engaging and solving problems together, bringing in real world issues and not simply being sponges sitting there absorbing content is the way for us to teach because students have access to content at their fingertips, in their phones, on their laptops. They don't actually need somebody at the front of the room sitting there and telling them all of this information. They just need to figure out how to use that information to solve complex problems. And so now our, our method of transforming undergraduate ed is, is, is pretty successful and many other universities are engaging in the same process. Sure. And, and of course, the you know, flipping classrooms and active learning and experiential learning are, are, are all the um, um, all the rage. And as you say, many, many people are are doing it. It's surprising that there's still resistance to it. Um, but um, at, in terms of your work in in uh, at the higher ed level, what uh, what were some of the, the biggest surprises uh uh, surprises, differences, say, in contrast with your your K twelve work. Well, I think I think a couple of things. First of all, <laughs> students at the undergraduate level have the ability to walk out of the room if they don't want to learn like that. So it's not unusual um, for students to drop the course after the first day. Yeah, and I think that's because you know there are still, unfortunately, um, some situations in which. Learning like this is a lot harder. It it has a great yield, but it also takes a lot of effort on the student's part because they have to engage firsthand in the work. And so I think one of my biggest surprises was that I guess I never expected that somebody would want to just would not want to learn like this. But there are there are opportunities where students recognize that maybe they're better off in a lecture based hall. Um, I think the other surprise for me, too, was just the resistance in general. Um, now, we don't see as much resistance today, but I would say definitely in t- from 2005 to 2008, we we saw a lot of resistance. Resistance on students' parts, resistance on even, you know, our colleagues' part in terms of not wanting to shift to this kind of teaching. Um, we're We're not in that position today, but I think when any kind of change is very, very difficult. And so when you're used to teaching in a particular way, it's hard to, sh- to transition. And so I think reform in general, education reform in general, is not easy. And so I think one of the other greatest surprises for me was just how difficult this was to do. We've now been working like this, teaching science in a much more inquiry-centered approach, much more um, integrated approach for, what, um, you know, 12 years now. Uh, and we've made a lot of progress, but there's still a lot, a lot more that we can do. So I think that's probably, you know, the resistance was the biggest surprise. Yeah. And, and so the, and the, and of course, um, you know, and a lot of times I, I, I like to talk about that, you know, so the, 
we talk about reform in terms of content curriculum and pedagogy and of course those things are important but the the resistance is coming from the culture the culture is a set of assumptions about a lot of things and as well as artifacts uh, at the top and and espoused values uh, to use uh, um, Ed Shine's model but um but it seems to me that we, we some, to some extent, we're mistaken about what it is that we're changing. We think in terms of changing content curriculum and pedagogy. Yes, those are the those are the those are artifacts of the change. But the actual thing that we are changing is is the the culture. We're, we're, we've got a few minutes left, so um, short comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, especially because I teach a course that's a introductory course, not for yeah. non-science majors for the yep. physics department, that I think my biggest hope is that in terms of changing culture, it's shifting students' thinking from hating science, because yep. those two words come together way too often, <laughs> to yep. really seeing science all around them and appreciating it um, and seeing their own contributions to it. And so, you know, I introduce students to what citizen science is so that they can recognize the importance of that all citizens play in collecting data and moving the field ahead. Um, you know, I help them see the world around them by recognizing what's, what's happening in their daily life and what we've learned and how they can apply it um, to, their, to their everyday life. And so I think it's just wanting to make sure that by shifting the culture, we are shifting the culture so that students see science in a good way and that we stop using the word hard when we talk about science and and that people start to recognize its importance yeah. and that it's and that it's also exciting and fun. And so I think that's for me that's the the biggest hope. By the end of my semester I always want my kids to say I I hated science when I started and I absolutely love it now. And that's a pretty common comment on course nice. evaluations. Yeah. So just uh, we've got about uh, 20 seconds left. Where can people find out more about um about you and, and your work at the Smithsonian Science Education Center? So I would strongly encourage folks to go to scienceeducation.si.edu. Um, again, scienceeducation.si.edu. That's our website. Um, I think uh, also just si.edu, which is the Smithsonian's website. Lots of wonderful resources for people that are free, whether you're an educator or a student or um, just a uh, general citizen who's interested in science or science education. Great. Thank you, Carol, for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to our guest, Carol O'Donnell, and uh, the Smithsonian's Science Education Center. Help transform higher education. Help unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.